Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to 1 Corinthians, what we call 1 Corinthians, Paul's first letter to the Church of God in Corinth. It's been a couple of weeks since we were last here, but we will resume our slow march through this very instructive and indeed timely book of the Bible. Last time, if you will remember, we studied the end of chapter 9, where Paul uses the metaphor of a race to describe the Christian life. He says, run the race so as to win the prize. Compete in a way that will allow you to have victory. Don't be lazy. Don't be undisciplined. Don't be disqualified because of a lack of self-control. And in the larger context of chapters 8 through 10, he's specifically addressing our liberties, our Christian freedoms. He's saying, use your genuine freedom in Christ as a tool for racing well, for finishing the Christian race victoriously, rather than using your freedoms to the detriment of your endeavors. And so tonight in chapter 10, Paul switches to another source of illustrative material. He moves from the sermon illustration of an athletic competition in chapter 9 back to Old Testament stories. Paul sees in the Old Testament many illustrations, parables, which ought to serve us both as positive examples of racing well and negative warnings against not finishing well. We will note especially tonight the sin of presumption, that is to pridefully presume upon the grace of our Lord, to take for granted the grace that God has shown you, to ignore His clear warnings against sin and to forget the grace that He's already shown. God's grace is never granted so that we might have license to sin. Christian freedom is never to be used as as an excuse for lawlessness, as we will soon see. And Lord willing, over the next few weeks, we will work through this chapter and see not only what Paul sees in the Old Testament, but also taking note of how Paul reads his Old Testament. And I think that as we slow down and examine exactly how Paul is reading his Bible, that will help us read our Bibles better. But let's start by reading our passage. I'll begin by reading the entirety of 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13, though we won't make it all the way to 13 tonight. Hear the word of our Lord. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, And all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. They were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. 
No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would be with us, that You would help us to read Your Bible well, that we might see Christ as Paul saw Christ, even in the Old Testament. And that by seeing Christ, we might be transformed. By believing in Him as our Messiah, we too might be transformed by moment by moment to from one degree of glory to the next. Make us holy, Lord, by Your Word. In Christ's name, Amen. We should begin by remembering the context of Paul's exhortations here. Paul is writing to Corinthian believers who had been using their freedom in Christ as an excuse to sin against God and to sin against their fellow believers. We might also say that Paul's here warning against the danger of the sin of presumption that I mentioned before. This is the arrogant disposition of heart whereby believers take God's grace and His mercy for granted. They instead boldly act in some sinful way, presuming that God would forgive them. They're arrogant in their own strength. They're boasting in self, forgetting what God has done for them in the past. They say to themselves, God has shown me grace in the past, and He will surely do it in the future. God forgave me then, and He'll forgive me now in this sin that I'm about to commit. And such a disposition forgets the true reality of God's prior grace and presumes that God will continue to show mercy and indeed begins to assume that such act of future forgiveness and future mercy is owed to me. And that's the dangerous place to be, a precarious position to be in, as we will see. And the Old Testament saints pictured this sin in the way that they ignored God and they presumed to judge Him. Let's look at verses 1 through 5, and we'll see the Old Testament experiences that Paul gives as an illustration. We'll note the Old Testament experiences that Paul wants us to remember. Paul says in verse 1, For I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. He's using a, a negative construction here to make the point. He's deliberately understating something for rhetorical effect. He doesn't merely want them to not be ignorant. He's telling them to heads up, pay attention, listen, this is serious. Like, okay, Paul, you got our attention. What's the point? And the point from verses 1 through 5 is very clear. Don't be like our fathers. Do not be like our fathers. Don't be like the Hebrews in the desert. Don't presume like them. And, and this is the most important part. Because God was not pleased with them. That's how verse 5 ends. So let's walk slowly through these verses. Talk about where the Hebrew fathers went wrong. Verse 1. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Paul's here referring to the events of the Exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea. One of the most central events in all of Jewish history where God miraculously brought His people out of slavery in Egypt by His mighty arm. You could go back and read Exodus 13 and 14, but I'll just remind us of the story. Remember, God sent all those plagues into Egypt, and eventually Pharaoh relents, and he lets the Hebrews go. 
God then leads this mass of people with a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. And this cloud and the pillar represented the presence of God among his people. It reminded them of God's special presence in their midst, leading them, protecting them, guiding them. Whenever they were afraid, they could look out their window and see that the pillar was still there. Whenever little Sally couldn't sleep at night, she could just peek out of her tent window and see the pillar and know that God was there. He hadn't left them. But indeed, it wasn't merely the pillar and the cloud. Paul says that all of them passed through the sea. He's not saying they all swam together. He doesn't say they walked around it or they made their way through the mucky part of it. He's referring to the miraculous event where God used Moses to split a sea into two walls of water and the people of God marched through on dry ground. And then, when all the Hebrews were safe on the other side, God released the walls of water and judged Pharaoh and his most powerful army. So let me ask you a question. If you had seen such miracles, a huge pillar of fire every night, a huge cloud during the day, a sea split in half, do you think you'd ever have reason to doubt God's power again? Having seen that, do you, do you think you might ever have just cause to question God's goodness his power, his might, his favor towards you? Of course not. That's what the Hebrews did. Even with God's visible presence with the people of God day and night, even with God's miraculous splitting of the sea and creating dry ground, many of them, they groaned, they grumbled. They presumed upon God's grace. They sinned. They ignored God. They doubted His presence. They doubted His goodness. They doubted His love. They doubted His plan. But what of this language in verse 2? All were through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Paul's here is using the Christian understanding of baptism to fill in the meaning of what was happening here in the events of the Exodus. The Hebrews were coming under the leadership of Moses. He was their covenant head, which means that God makes a covenant, an agreement with his people, the people of Israel, and Moses is the one that represents God to the people. He's the one that represents the people to God. He is the mediator, the go-between. He's the covenant head. Likewise, it's the same in the new covenant. When we come through the waters of baptism, which symbolize us being born again, us being washed of our sin, us being regenerated and made new, we're not baptized into ourselves. We're not baptized into autonomy. We're not baptized into a pastor, nor a pope. We're baptized into a new head, and that head is Christ. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. He perfectly fulfills the pattern that was set by Moses. Indeed, Jesus exceeds the pattern and is greater than Moses ever was or ever could have been. That's what Hebrews 3 and 4 tells us. You can read that for homework. But these Hebrews weren't merely all benefiting from the cloud and the sea. Verse 3 tells us more. It says they all ate the same spiritual food. Paul's referring to the miraculous provision of manna. After the 
Hebrews had made it past the Red Sea in Exodus 14, and Moses sings a glorious song of praise to God in Exodus 15, we get to Exodus 16, which you can turn there if you'd like. Hold your finger in 1 Corinthians 10 and flip over to Exodus chapter 16. We see things take a bad turn and take that turn quickly. Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They're saying, We're so hungry we could die. I wish you had left us in slavery. I wish you would have just killed us in Egypt. At least when we were slaves, we had food. And God in his kindness does what to this grumbling people? He rains bread from heaven. Heavenly bread coming down to feed them. Amazing, miraculous, exceedingly merciful provision to a grumbling people who deserved none of it. But don't, don't let God's provision here distract us from Paul's main point about the Hebrews. Do you see how quickly the people of God turned? Do you see the presumption in their hearts that led them to grumble against the God that just split the Red Sea in half and judged the army? That's the point from 1 Corinthians 10. Don't forget. Don't be like them. Don't arrogantly posture yourself as the one who is fit to judge the goodness and plan of God. Don't grumble against his provision saying, I deserve better. I know better than you, God. And this sin of grumbling wasn't just a one-time event. Paul reminds us back in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4, they all drank the same spiritual drink. He's talking about Exodus 16, the very next chapter, which you can read along with me if you'd like. Exodus 17. It says, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses, and they said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses, and they said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and to kill our children and to kill our livestock with thirst? And so Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Verse 6. Behold, and here's the key verse of the whole passage. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people with drink will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. 
And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. Because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Similar to the previous chapter, the Israelites are grumbling against God. They're quarreling with God and with his representative, Moses. They had forgotten about God's former provision. And they're presuming to act and to judge God's gracious actions. But what does God do? Look back at verse 6. He says, I will stand before you there on the rock, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it. The Hebrews were trying to put God on trial. They were trying to question His faithfulness, His provision, His goodness, and God does something that nobody expected. He says, I'm going to stand on the rock. Here is where Moses is going to strike, where I'm standing. In other words, God's presence. He, he himself would willingly submit to being struck by his own instrument of judgment so that a grumbling people could have their lives saved. Does that sound familiar? That's where Paul helps us read this story. He says back in 1 Corinthians 10 that the Hebrews drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And so Paul's point is huge for us. He's saying that when God submitted to be struck so that a thirsty people could be saved, that was a picture foreshadowing Jesus. The innocent God, rejected by his people, falsely judged as guilty, struck by a rod of judgment, then being the source of life for a presumptuous and grumbling people. That's the gospel right there in a rock. Christ was the innocent one struck by the rod of judgment in order that a grumbling and presumptuous people might be given the water of life. Rather than striking dead the sinful people, which would have been just, Christ himself becomes the one that was struck for the sins of his people. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his stripes, we are healed. Do you know this story? Have you tasted of the water of life that comes only from Jesus Christ? The one who was struck in judgment so that a grumbling people might be saved. If not, then I encourage you to consider yourself. Are you a grumbler? Have you a complaining spirit that so quickly whines about trials and dares to presume, to judge God and His faithfulness at the first sign of your discomfort. If that's you, then remember this rock that was struck so that your soul might be refreshed. He was killed in the place of a sinful people in order that that sinful people might be given the one thing they need, life. We are all born sinners under the curse of sin and death, but when we come to Christ and believe, we're granted new life, we're granted eternal life, we're given forgiveness, our souls are refreshed. Indeed, we're even promised by Jesus hearts that overflow with rivers of living water. John 7, 38. Trust in this Jesus, in the one that was struck in your place so that you too might be forgiven. And you too can taste of the water that quenches every thirsty soul. And believers, come back to this rock again and have your parched soul refreshed. Perhaps you see in the Hebrews your own sin. I know I do. 
Maybe you've grumbled against God's plan for your life. You've griped about His goodness. Or maybe you're questioning His provision. Lord, I feel like I'm about to die in this desert. We're all guilty of thinking that we can judge the God of all the living. And in doing so, we demonstrate our need of His mercy. But be encouraged that He willingly provides that which our souls most need. He's granted for us a spiritual rock, and that is Christ. He's promised us living water that can satisfy us for all of eternity. He's promised us bread from heaven as we wander the remaining desert of this life. He's promised His presence in this world, not merely a pillar out there or a cloud out there. He's promised His very presence within us, His Holy Spirit. The pillar is within us. And most of all, He's promised us forgiveness of our sins of grumbling and presumption. And if that's the case, then let us never presume upon God's grace. Trample upon the goodness that has been demonstrated to us. Let us never toy with sin. Let us never use our freedom in Christ as an excuse for license. Let us never forget the past provision of God. And dare we not say, oh, He'll just forgive me anyway. Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 10.5 not to be like these Hebrews who all went through the sea, all tasted of the bread, all drank from the rock, and yet with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Even though they started the race well, and they were all on the same footing coming out of the Red Sea, Even though they all tasted of the manna and drank from the same rock, not all ended the race well. In fact, most of them didn't. In Exodus 12, it says that roughly 600,000 men left Egypt. So if you count the women and the children, you're well into the millions. And of those millions that left, only Joshua and Caleb made it into the promised land. Most did not end their race well. That's what Paul's pointing out. He says that not he says that not merely to say that few are going to finish, but as a way to sober us into the necessity of running so as to win the prize. As I've said in previous sermons, I don't think Paul is talking about salvation in chapters 8 through 10, but he's talking about finishing the Christian race well as opposed to finishing the Christian life by the skin of your teeth. And yet we all need to hear the warning. Am I closer to finishing this race well? Or am I like the Hebrews in the desert? Forgetting what God has done in the past. Grumbling about what God's doing now. And doubting that He will do anything good in the future. I was reflecting this past week with a fellow pastor about how disappointing and sobering it can be in ministry to see people not finish the race well. Thinking of people earlier in life that I had seen that served the church with great faithfulness. They were regularly in attendance, encouraging and serving the body. They were committed to the life of the local church. They were indeed serving as leadership in churches. By all appearances, they were growing and thriving in the Lord. But slowly... 
almost imperceptibly, their attendance began to slack off. Their involvement began to wane. They had begun to drift. And each had a different reason, which of course was compelling to them and justifiable of their drift. One was busy with work, one was unhappy about this or that, one had been hurt. And many of their feelings were true and valid, but as a result, they began to drift from a former pattern of faithfulness. That was sobering to me, that somebody my age was a pillar in the church, and by the time of their death, nobody knew them. They were not known for faithfulness to the end. Once faithful leaders, now on the fringe. Once dedicated soldiers in Christ, now they were AWOL. Once dedicated, now distracted. We all need these examples from the Old Testament, if only to sober us up to the real danger of not finishing well. Of not letting grumbling and presumptuous hearts lead us where we never thought we would go. That's why the, the New Testament is full of statements like, hold fast to your confession. Remember the things you were taught. Paul indeed says these things were written down for our instruction. He knows we're a forgetful people. And I've said a lot tonight, and I haven't made it as far in this passage as I was hoping, but I want to make a few passing observations before we finish. I think this passage of Scripture is especially helpful for us to understand how our Bible fits together. Paul's reading of the Old Testament helps us understand how we ought to read our Bible better. So first observation. Notice how Paul's passage here assumes a great deal of Old Testament knowledge. He didn't quote large passages of the Old Testament. He assumes in his readers, in his hearers, a great familiarity with the Old Testament. He assumes here and in many other of his letters that they would know their Bible, the Old Testament. They would have been familiar with the Exodus story. And I think that's instructive because Corinth was a predominantly Gentile congregation. They weren't raised in the synagogue hearing the rabbis teach the Old Testament stories every week. If the Old Testament were merely for the Jews, then Paul would not have been able to assume such Old Testament knowledge from his Gentile hearers. He actually assumes that this Gentile body of believers in Corinth would know their Old Testament really well. Would we catch what Paul was saying? Do we know our Old Testament well? Second observation. What does Paul call the Hebrews in these Old Testament references? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. He says, our fathers. Our fathers. He's speaking to a Gentile congregation, and he says that the Hebrews were their fathers also. How could Paul get away with saying that the Jewish fathers would also be the fathers of the Gentiles? He could say that because Paul understood the fundamental unity of the people of God. He understood that God has a people. 
Not two people. Christ is not a polygamist. He has one bride. And that bride is made up of Jew and Gentile from every tribe and tongue and nation. That's why he can say, Paul can say in Galatians 3.29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. Not every Jew born of the flesh is actually a son of Abraham. To be a child of God, to be part of God's household, to be part of God's people, to be a son of Abraham, an heir according to the promise, you must be united to God by faith. Not merely born of Jewish descent, not not merely one who has been circumcised, you must have circumcision of heart. It's what Paul makes clear in Romans 2, and he says, For no one is a Jew who is one merely outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. That means obedience to the law cannot make you a child of God. Faith is what makes you a child of God. To be a true offspring of Abraham and a child of God, an heir according to the promise, is one who has been born of the Spirit, not of the flesh. We are ones who have been circumcised of heart. When we are born again, we Gentiles become spiritual heirs of God's nation. We are grafted into the tree of God's people. We become part of God's one household. That's why the children's song is correct. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. Are you? Next, a a third observation. 1 Corinthians 10. We've seen the assumed Old Testament familiarity, and we've seen the unity of God's people, but also another observation, which I think is assumed in the previous one, and that is the unity of God's redemptive plan. The unity of God's redemptive plan. There are some theologies out there, some systems that put sharp discontinuity between the Old and the New Testament. In fact, some people would go so far as to say that God saved the people in the Old Testament by one way, and He saves the people in the New Testament by another way. God had one plan for the Jews. He has another plan for the church. I am not convinced that that's the best way to read the Bible. And this is one of the passages that leads me to think that way. Paul assumes fundamental continuity between the Old and the New Testament. Verse 4, he says that the Hebrews drank from the same spiritual rock which followed them, and that was Christ. The Lord so ordained the story of Exodus 17 that it would be both God physically providing water for a thirsty people and also an illustration of a deeper spiritual reality. And in light of later Scripture, we are made aware of that deeper meaning that was embedded in the illustration the whole time. That is to say, the New Testament makes clear for us things that were present in the Old Testament even if we miss them. And 1 Corinthians 10 is one example of that. Paul says that the striking of the rock was a picture of Christ. It was a foreshadowing that was meant to teach everyone that God's provision would look this way. It wasn't that there was no embedded meaning in the original story, but that Paul just happened to find an Old Testament illustration that fit his his point now. He's saying Christ was the point of the story all along. God's provision for His people through being struck Himself was the point that He was trying to make all along. 
And we just needed a spirit-filled apostle to teach that to us. God's plan of redemption from the beginning was to save a people of his choosing through his sovereign action to save them through faith. It was true of Abraham. It was true of the Hebrews. It's true of us. It's what Romans 4 teaches. Faith in God is what counts us as righteousness. God has acted in this redemptive way from the beginning because of the fundamental unity that he has in his redemptive plan. Now, by way of conclusion tonight, we get to see another illustration of God's redemptive plan. We have pictured for us at the Lord's table a rock who was struck, our manna from heaven, the bread of life, the saving water of life, all seen in the body and blood of Christ. He was struck in our place that we might be saved. He was sent from heaven that we might be fed in the wilderness of this life and sustained in our journey. Even now, He promises us to help us persevere in our journey by spiritually nourishing us through this meal whereby we feed on Him through faith. This meal is for God's people. It's for those who are marked by the fruit of discipleship that we see in Acts chapter 2. Devoted to the apostles' teaching, now found in God's Word, to the fellowship with the body, to prayers, and to breaking of bread. If that's you, if you're a baptized believer, not out of fellowship with a gospel church, then we invite you to join us at the table. If that's not you, then let the plates pass. First come to the rock and drink from him. Then you may join us at his table. I'll pray and then our table servants will come. Holy Father, we praise you for the provision that we have because the rock was struck in our place. The manna that we have to sustain us in this life. But we pray that you would use these elements and that you would build up your church through them. That's this in Christ's name. Amen.